So we're going to be here in Isaiah chapter 57, starting in verse 11, and we're going to go into Isaiah 58 here tonight. Um, so we're here, like I said, in Isaiah 57, 11, and before I even read that, um, I just want to share a verse with, uh, that you probably are familiar with, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. There Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And so just a reminder tonight as we go into this Old Testament passage, uh, this passage, as is all of scripture, it's there to to at times reprove us, to correct us, to instruct us in righteousness. And, and so my prayer is that I and you would hear what the Lord is wanting to say to us tonight from this passage in Isaiah. You know, the prophet Isaiah um, prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah from around 739 BC to 681 BC. This was during the reigns of Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, during his ministry, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians and carried away into captivity because they had turned their backs on the Lord. And so what they had been warned of happened, and Isaiah and the other prophets were warning Israel, uh, Judah, of the same thing. And, and so this is a, it was a very dark time spiritually in Judah, um, and Isaiah was trying to speak into that. I mean, there was a show of righteousness, and we're going to see that tonight as we read this. And we'll see also as we look at this passage that sadly, even though there was a show of righteousness, that was an illusion that was being lived out by the people. They'd allowed themselves to be deceived, and sadly, they would fall to the Babylonians in 586 BC, a little over 100 years after Isaiah prophesied. And so that's where we are here in the book of Isaiah. And, you know, the first part of chapter 57, which we aren't going to read tonight, the Lord had just spoken to them of, of their idolatry that they were involved in. I mean, they were involved in all kinds of idolatry, and we're going to talk a little bit about that more in just a moment, but it was, again, a very dark time, and Isaiah's, again, speaking into that. In fact, the opening part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, God gives this assessment of his people. He says, a last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. And so that's kind of really a good just synopsis of where they were as a nation. Um, they were far from the Lord, but as we look at this passage tonight, we're gonna see that they had a little bit different view of themselves, and, uh, and the Lord's going to challenge them on that. So let me just read here Isaiah 57, 11. It says, And of whom have you been afraid or feared, that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I've held my peace from of old that you did not fear me? And so <clears throat> the Lord begins here with just this rebuke, you know, of them. I mean, they had not feared him, and you know, sadly, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, just a little bit about their idolatry here in this chapter 57, it's really pretty graphically described. I mean, it was an idolatry that involved not only the worship of these false gods, but it's an idolatry that involved all kinds of sexual immorality in the worship of those gods. And as if that wasn't enough, it was an idolatry that also led them to sacrifice their children to these gods, to burn them alive and worship to these false gods. And that's how far from the Lord they were. And so the Lord's questioning them here is, why didn't you fear me? 
You know, there in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I just want to read this 29 through 31, God had very clearly told them uh, not to worship the gods of other nations. And let me just read that passage. It says, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods. Saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So that's where they were. You know, they were in this place of just this idolatrous worship. God had told them, you know, to not do this. God had told them to not even inquire about these gods and study what the people and the nations around them had done, and yet they had done just the opposite. And we see here in verse 11, you know, they've mistaken God's mercy and his grace for approval for what they were doing. He's like, why haven't you feared? Why haven't you feared me? And because they hadn't heard the Lord, because the Lord hadn't judged them, they mistakenly assumed that God was okay or God didn't care. David Guzik says of this, he says, why did God's people lack respect for him? In part because he showed mercy and did not punish their sin immediately. They made a crucial error common to fallen humanity. They mistook God's mercy and forbearance for weakness or lack of resolve. And that's where, again, they were. And so God was giving them the space to repent. You know, he was showing mercy. This is who our God is. And they were allowing that fact that he was doing that, uh, that things were going well to be a sign for God's approval of what they were doing. And for us today, as his children, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be careful not to mistake God's mercy in our lives as a sign of approval for the things we're doing. The only thing that we have as a guide for whether what we're doing is right or wrong is we have God's word. And God has once and for all spoken about what we should do. God has clearly said in, clearly said in his word how we should be living. He's told us how things should be. And he hasn't changed his mind, right? And he hasn't given you or I a special exemption to disobey him. And sadly, I don't know if you have, but I've heard people say, well, I know that's what it says, but... God wants me to be happy, so he's, he's, he's given me the okay to go do this thing. You know, and people will say stuff like that, and they'll just outright ignore what the word of God has said. But God doesn't give us those special exemptions. He doesn't now change his mind or change what he has said. And, and I think it's important to be, be reminded of this, especially in the day and age we live in, where people, even in the church, are dismissing what the word of God says. And they're saying that, well, it doesn't really mean that. That's a, you know, and it's very clear what it said, but they'll try to say, well, it doesn't mean that. I don't think it means that, or it doesn't apply to our day and age. And it's a very dangerous place to be. And again, for them, they were mistaking God not punishing them for his approval and for, or maybe him uncaring about it. That brings us to verses 12 and 13 here in Isaiah 57, where it says, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away, a breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. 
So God here was going to declare to them their righteousness and their works. I mean, just say, I think it's never a good thing for God to do that, for God to declare our righteousness and our works. Because the word of God makes it clear in Isaiah 64, 6, the first half of it, it says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's our righteousness. Romans, in chapter 7 and verse 18, there the apostle Paul says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And so, it wasn't a positive thing for God to say, I'm going to declare your righteousness in your works. Because their righteousness and their works, in and of themselves, just like ours, is, is of no value. It's of no good. And in fact, God declares it to be an unclean thing. And so, that's what God was about to do. But again, they thought themselves to be righteous, and that was the problem. And they were trusted in their works. And sadly, their righteousness was one of their own creation. It was all false because it was not based on truth. Again, they were disregarding what God's word had said. You know, it's easy, really easy for them, and it is for us too, to have the appearance of righteousness, right? And to trust in in our good works, but God has always been the same in this. He wants a genuine relationship with us, a relationship that's based in truth. And that truth is found in his word, us coming to him in the way he's prescribed, not in our own way. And again, you know, that's where they were not doing. They were not coming to God in the way he had prescribed. They were doing their own thing. So God was saying here in these verses, since you believe your righteousness, let your collection of idols deliver you. And I love he reminds them there that these false idols are so powerless that a wind will take them away. And notice he's not talking about a gale force wind, some kind of hurricane or strong storm. He says, no, a simple breath will take them away. That's how powerless these things you're trusting in. And so anytime we're trusting in something beside the Lord, it's so easy for it to be taken away. It's so easy for it to be swept away. And so we need to remember and not let that fall prey to this thing of trusting in something else or someone else other than the Lord, which is what they had done. Now that brings us to verse 14 here in Isaiah 57. And I just want to read the first, well, let me read verse 14 and then in a minute, the first half of verse 15. But Isaiah 57, 14, and one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now this is a similar uh, statement as is given in Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 and 4. It's very similar language there and also in Isaiah 62:10. The former, Isaiah 43 and 4, there's a call there to prepare the way for the Lord, which is reiterated again in the gospel speaking of John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for the, for the Messiah to come. But in Isaiah 62.10 and here in Isaiah 57.14, the language speaks of preparing a way for God's people to come to God, for them to approach. And the thing about what's said here, both heap it up, heap it up, and prepare the way, both of those are imperative. So it's a command that's being given. It's a command, and that those, the heap it up, the language that's used there is of building up a road, of making a road and building it up so that people could come. 
and removing the stumbling block so, there'd be no, so the road would be clear for people to come to God. That's what God is speaking of there in Isaiah 57, 14. And we'll see in just a minute as we look at the last half of verse 15, I think the amazing purpose that for God commanding this to be done. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But doing the work to build up to the road and remove the stumbling stones was just the opposite, as you probably are familiar with, of what the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were doing. They were not doing that. In fact, in Matthew 23, verses 4 and 13, Jesus said this, he said, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so what are the things that make people stumble or hindered in coming to God? I mean, I think we could list a whole lot of things probably. And there's just a few I just wanted to mention. One, I think, is a misrepresentation of God. I mean, that's one of the things the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were misrepresenting who God is. And that was a stumbling. That was a hindrance to people being able to come to God. Um, another one that can cause people to stumble is telling people they can come any way they want to God, right? And again, in the church, in some sectors of the church today, people say it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. Just come and God just will accept it and, it and it doesn't matter really what you believe. It's fine, just come. We'll just love you and God loves you just like that. But that's gonna be a hindrance to people because you can't come to God any way that you want to come. And that hinders people from coming. Another way that people are hindered, I think, is people portraying God as unapproachable, right? And saying that, you know, of him, that he's unwilling for you to approach him. That God hates this kind of person and this so much that they, you can't approach God. And so just the complete opposite of, of those who say it doesn't matter, they're saying, you know, God hates you. And, and keep people from approaching the Lord. Um, you know, in the Gospels, we have another example of something that hindered people, and I think that's material things can be a stumbling block. And we have that example in, the, in that of the rich young ruler. You know, in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 22, there it says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so there, the example in his life was material things that were a stumbling block that hindered him from coming. It was hindering him from entering into the kingdom and from coming to the Lord. And so, again, there's all kinds of things that people can have that can stumble them and keep them from entering the kingdom. And, you know, one commentator says this this way, in every era, sin is the obstacle. You know, at the root of all those things I was mentioning was sin. It's the obstacle that prevents people from enjoying the revival of a person's discouraged spirit and a sense of God's presence. And so the call here is to remove those things, to remove those things that are hindering, to build up the road, to make it acceptable or easy for people to come to the Lord. And, you know, and we're called to be a part of that. 
We're called to live our lives in a way that makes it easy for people to understand and know who the Lord is and easy to come and to approach him. And you know, the people we're speaking of here in the book of Isaiah, right? One of their main calling as a nation was to be a, to be a light to the world, to be a light of, to the world of who God is. And yet they failed in that. They became a stumbling stone. They became a hindrance to the people being able to approach the Lord. And, and so the call is, you know, to them and to us, you know, make sure we're building up the road. We're making the path clear for people to be able to come. And so who is it that's saying this? Well, in the first half of verse 15, it's made really clear. So it says, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And quite honestly, I think, you know, we could probably just pause there tonight if we wanted to and just meditate on what that verse is saying. I mean, honestly, I have to say I'm at a loss to even begin to, de- to describe or to elaborate on what the Lord is saying there. There's just a couple of verses I do want to share that I think help to uh, convey what the Lord is saying there. But this is God's description of him. He's the high and lofty one. He is the one who inhabits eternity. He inhabits it all. Psalm 90 verse two, this is one that I think further explains this. this is, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in Revelation 1.8, there Jesus speaking to John, when John saw the vision, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so the Holy One, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who is above and exalted over everything, the one who is God, and we're nothing like him at all, you know, the one who knows all things, this is he who is speaking here to them, and I pray and I believe speaking to us tonight to remind us who he is. This is our God. This is the one that's far and above and beyond us. And I think it's so important we recognize who's speaking to us through his word. You know, at the beginning of the ministry of Isaiah, Isaiah was blessed with a vision. You know, and I'm sure if you could talk to Isaiah today, he'd probably go back to this vision that he had at the beginning of his ministry. Because that vision he had of the Lord allowed him to see the high and lofty one, the one who inhabits eternity. And to get that glimpse of this great God that he was being called, gonna be called to go and to represent. And you know that we see that, I believe it's in Isaiah chapter six, he recounts that vision that he had of the Lord. And repeatedly Isaiah comes back to that truth that God is holy. And that's what he saw there, the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. He saw that vision. And in fact, Isaiah's favorite description of God in the book of Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. That's his favorite description. He uses it 24 times in the book of Isaiah. He says, the Holy One of Israel. And I just want to share with you uh, five references from the book of Isaiah where he uses that, that phrase. Uh, I actually shared in the beginning the first one earlier on, and so there's six that I'm sharing with you tonight where he uses this phrase, the Holy One of Israel. But Isaiah 5.24, and you guys have the references up there. Isaiah 5.24 says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, 
so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 31.1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Isaiah 43.3, the first half, it says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then Isaiah 47.4, as for your, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And then Isaiah 54, five, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of all the earth. And so just on my heart as I was studying this for myself and for us tonight was that we would see afresh who God is, right? The Holy One of Israel, the one who inhabits eternity, because it's so important for us to think to see this. And you know, a couple of things that stand out to me from those references I just read to you, it speaks in those references of the fact that they had despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And how had they done that? But just living their life however they wanted to live it. That's how they had despised it. They had went and done their own thing. It says in one of the other references that they did not look to the Holy One of Israel. And the Lord wants us to look to him. The Lord wants us to have our eyes fully upon him and look to him for everything. You know, it says there too, the Holy One of Israel, he's our savior. One of the other references speaks about how he's our redeemer. And two of the references speak of that, that he's our redeemer. And so this is who our God is, right? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is our redeemer and our savior. And it's his word we must hear. It's his word we must listen to. And so he's just had this, you know, great description, which again, I'm only touching the barely even the surface of it. I mean, I, I would encourage us to go and just meditate on that, what the Lord's saying about himself there. But he says this of himself, and then look what he says in the last half of verse 15. He says, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Man, what a beautiful promise that the Lord is giving to us there. The reason to build up the road to remove the stumbling blocks that's referred to back in verse 14 is the fact that this high and lofty God above all wants to, uh, to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants us to dwell with him. It, the word humble and the words humble and contrite there, that word contrite means crushed or humiliated, and humble is bowed low. And <clears throat> there's some interesting similarity in the language here to that in Isaiah chapter 53, which if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is where it talks about the suffering servant. It talks about Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that the, some of the similar language is used when you think of Jesus who humbled himself, right? He humbled himself and, and he went to the cross for us. He allowed himself to be humiliated for our salvation, for our redemption. And here the Lord is saying to us, I'm, I wanna dwell with you. I want to be able to dwell with you, but we, you have to come with a humble and contrite heart. 
you have to come in this attitude of humility. And not only will he dwell with us, but he says there he's gonna revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Um, You know, it's so amazing what God is saying here to us about himself. You know, in Isaiah 66, 2, the Lord says, for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, the proud he knows from afar. And this again, this is who our God is. This is why this road needs to be built up because not only does the Lord want to dwell with us, he wants to dwell with everyone around us. He wants them to be able to approach him as well. And so let's, re- you know, call again, let's remove the stumbling blocks, let's build up the road. And allow the Lord to speak to us about what that looks like in our life. I think that can look different in each of our lives. And I'm not going to begin tonight to go down through what that looks like. But we need to hear the Lord and let the Lord speak to us about, is there anything in our lives that's hindering people from coming to God and from being able to experience this or even hindering us? Now, what the Lord's saying here. I think gets even clearer, clearer elaboration over in John chapter 14. So if you would turn with me just briefly over to John 14, this thing of God dwelling with us. And we're gonna read John 14, 15 through 20. <clears throat> you know, I love uh, John chapter 14. I mean, this is the section of scripture where Jesus is just about to go and to the cross, right? And so it's just the night before and Jesus is sharing some very important things with his disciples. And he, and he begins here in, in this section to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is related to this thing of God dwelling with us. And so John 14, 15 through 20 says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so Jesus there, you know, I think the culmination of it, right? I mean, this is what God's intention was. God's intention was for us to be able to dwell with him and for this God who inhabits eternity to make his home in us through his spirit. And I mean, you talk about something that's incongruent, right? I mean, here's this God, the one who inhabits eternity, and he dwells in me and in you through his spirit. And this is what God was, was chasing after, is one of the things the Lord had in mind in our redemption, is for us to be able to have this privilege of God dwelling with us. And I don't know for you tonight, you know, maybe you've been saved a long time and you've kind of forgotten what it was like before God dwelled with you. And may the Lord remind us tonight of, man, what an amazing thing that we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We get to have this fellowship with him. We don't have to wander through this world without his guidance and his direction and his presence, his comfort, right? Through difficult times because he's with us. 
And so the reminder back here in Isaiah 57 is those who have a humble and contrite spirit get to dwell in the high and holy place with God. Not only do they have that privilege, but as I mentioned earlier, God will also revive our spirit and our heart, and that's his promise there. Now, we come to 57, chapter 57, verses 16 through 19, and here we have God's merciful work. And I think if you haven't already seen it here in what we've been talking about tonight, you'll definitely see it in this passage. But it's always interesting to me that people have heard people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different. He's vengeful and wrathful and just angry all the time. You know, they'll say things like that. And the God of the New Testament is, is different. You know, there's mercy, compassion. You'll say it in different ways, but they haven't read the Bible if they say that. Because we're seeing here tonight, in these verses we're gonna read, we see clearly that God has shown all throughout scripture that he's a God of mercy. He's a God that desires to show mercy to people. And let's read verses 16 through 19. It says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And listen to this. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. And then verse 18, in stark contrast, says, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You know, (laughs) what an amazing, amazing thing that God is saying here. You know, sin causes us to be at odds with God. And yes, for him to be angry, because he's a holy God, as he's always already expressed to us in this section. And, and this sin not only causes God to be angry, but it causes God to have to bring punishment. And sadly, many don't respond, right? Many don't respond to, to God and go on turning their back on him. And what God says in verse 18, I think, is so beautiful. And as one commentator states, and I agree with this, he says, the unmerited nature of God's favor uh, rarely, has rarely been expressed more beautifully than in verse 18. And again, I'll just read it. I've seen his ways, speaking of the backslider, the one who he said there in verse 17 has went the way of his heart. And God says in verse 18, As I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we get to represent to the world. Yes, God hates sin. Yes, God doesn't want sin in a person's life, but God is willing to accept anyone who's willing to humble themselves and come. God is willing to show mercy to any who will seek him and look to him. And you know, in Ephesians 2.17, it picks up on what's said here in verse 19. There, Paul says, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. In Romans 5.1 and 2, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope at the glory of God. So this is God here still continuing to chase after them, continuing to try to, to get them to turn back and get them to hear that, come, come to me. And, you know, the song we sung earlier tonight, you know, how the faith has 
how he's been faithful, you know, faithful, to, and he continues to chase after. This is, this is who God is. He has not desired for anybody to, to suffer, to, uh, to be cast into hell forever. God's desire is for all to come to repentance. And sadly, in verse, the end of chapter 57, you know, it reminds us of something, though. It says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And, you know, I think this is pretty easy to observe as you look around the world, the world and you see people. You see that apart from God, people don't have peace. Apart from God, people are looking for peace, but they're not going to find it apart from the Lord. And, you know, if you think about it, that really is the mercy of God, that people can't find peace anywhere else than in, than in him. Imagine if he allowed people to find peace in what would destroy them. That would be unjust. But our God's not unjust. He's not. And so he will not let people find peace. They will never find peace in anything but in him alone. And so tonight, the only reason we have peace is because of our, fa- of our faith being in Jesus Christ and us having a relationship with him. That's the only way that peace is found. So that brings us to Isaiah chapter 58. And here we begin in verse one with God's call to cry out. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. And so God tells Isaiah to cry aloud, to lift his voice like a trumpet. God wanted them to hear the truth and he didn't want Isaiah to be ashamed to declare it. The things that God was about to say would it not have been pleasant for them to hear. He was going to tell of their transgressions as sins, as we see there in that verse. While it would not be pleasant, it was needed. The Lord loved them, and he loves us too much not to be honest with us. And I say, you know, that's one of the thing, many things, but one of the things that stands out to me that I really appreciate about the Lord is that, you know, he's honest with me. You know, he never sugarcoats it. He never shades in the shadows. He always just tells us how it is because he loves us. And so he doesn't play around. He's straightforward and he clearly declares to us what the truth is. I mean, think about it. The most important thing we can know is how to be saved. And God has clearly and plainly told us how to be saved. He's left it. You have to work hard to confuse it. You really do. But because he loves us, he's plainly told us what the truth is and how we can have a right relationship with him. And that brings us to verses two through five, which I think we see here an illusion of genuine worship. It says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of of justice to take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you have no, no, take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? And so, again, you know, I believe what we see here is an illusion of genuine worship. You know, they're talking about that they're 
fasting, that they delight to seek the Lord. And an illusion, I just, you know, def, one of the definitions of illusion is perception of something objectively existing in such a way as to cause misrepresentation of its actual nature. And that's what they were doing here. They were, they were putting forth this image of actually wanting to seek the Lord, and they weren't. I just want to read to you verse 2 from the New Living Translation, because I think it, I think it makes it even more plain uh, what's being said there. It says, Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. And so that's the true assessment that God had of them and their worship that they were bringing. It's like, you guys are just pretending. You aren't for real in what you're doing. You know, last Wednesday, Pastor Jeremy shared with us from 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 32 through 41 in his message. And one of the things that struck me there was several times, speaking of the Assyrians that had been brought into the northern kingdom to occupy the land after the, Assyri- the other nations that had been brought in by the Assyrians to occupy the land. And it says in several places there that the people feared God. But then in verse 34, it says they do not fear God. And so I was thinking about, so what gives? Did they fear God or not? They would have said they fear God. And I think that's why it said several times they fear God. They would have said that. But their actions proved otherwise. And so the truth was, is what's in verse 34 of Acts 7, I mean, 2 Kings 17, is they did not fear the Lord because they were worshiping God on their own terms. They wanted to worship their idols that they brought with them. And now let's worship the God of this land too. And we'll just make it all one thing. And this is what God was confronting with his people here. They were worshiping him, but on their terms with an outward show. They were not fasting to seek God. In fact, he says it was for their own pleasure. While they were fasting, it tells us in verse 3, they were driving their workers hard. So it's like they were fasting pretending to worship the Lord, and then they were using that as an excuse. We're fasting, we can't work. You guys need to go work harder. You know? And so they were making more harsh treatment upon those that their hired servants, all in the name of their false religion, of pretending that they were worshiping the Lord. And so, again, it was just an illusion. You know, in Isaiah 29, 13, it says, Therefore the Lord said, And as much as these people draw near with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. And so this is where they were, right? It was They were in this thing of outward show with no substance. All the while fasting, they were mistreating other people. They were striking people and arguing with people, and there was all kinds of things that were clear violations of God's word they were doing, and then at the same time, well, let's go worship the Lord. You know, let's go and offer him sacrifice. Let's go seek him. That brings us to verses 6 through 11, where I think we see God lay out here what genuine worship is, and he gives some promised blessings for those that come in genuine worship. Let's just read those verses there, 6 through 11 of Isaiah 58. He says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall, bring forth, shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from the midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the effect, afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters, uh, spring of water whose waters do not fail. And so some things about genuine worship that, and how it looks, I just want to point out. In verse 6, he speaks of loosening the bonds of wickedness. And the language that's used there, you know, means a state or condition of evil with a focus on the violation of moral or civil law by evil deeds. Again, God had clearly said in their word how they should treat hired servants and how they should be acting as a nation, and they were violating that. And God was like, if you want to genuinely worship me, start by stopping the mistreatment of those working for you. Once you start with that, forget the fasting right now, start treating people correctly, and let's begin with that. In verse seven, he speaks of sharing with those in need. You know, giving food to the hungry, give shelter to the outcasts and clothing to those who need it and don't hide from your family in need. It mentions like family in that passage. So, you know, they were already at this point in Jesus' day, they were doing much the same thing. The religious leaders had found a way to not care for their parents by setting aside something and say, well, this is dedicated to the Lord. All the while they were still getting an advantage from it but using it as a reason to not care for their family. And, you know, so they were doing something like that here. They were taking advantage, not caring for even their own family members. And verses nine, the last half of verse nine through first half of verse 10, it says, if you do these, remove the heavy burden from others, stop blaming others and saying that you need to do this or that, and stop the evil speaking, which could be lying, slander, talking behind the back. I mean, so some pretty basic things the Lord was saying they needed to get straight. And if they would do that, the Lord gives them these promised blessings. And in verse eight, he says, your light will bring forth, break forth like the morning. You know, in some contexts, this word light uh, is associated with the meaning of guidance, health, life, prosperity, enlightened judgment, and other positive things. So the Lord was saying, there's gonna be light. You know, there's going to be direction for your life. I mean, they're coming, asking him. They're wanting guidance, they say. The Lord's like, rightly worship me, and you will have guidance. You will have direction. And in verse 8, it also says, your healing shall bring, spring forth speedily. That word healing there means restoration of relationship. And one of the complaints they had was back in verse 3, where they said, why have we fasted? and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no, no notice? Their sin had caused the relationship to be broken. And the Lord's promising that if you turn to me and follow me as you should, the relationship will be restored. I will restore the relationship. It wasn't the Lord who left them. They left the Lord. And the Lord's trying to get them to see that. And you know, that reminds me of, a, of the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, where this, Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
You know, Jesus didn't leave them. They left him and, and lost sight of things. And the third promise there we have in verse 8 is your righteousness shall go before you. And that righteousness it means salvation which comes from God. And again, you know, salvation we know is only found in the Lord. And so, you know, they would have the salvation that they need if they would just turn back to him and quit doing the things they were doing and seeking these false gods. And it promises, too, that the glory of the Lord would be their rear guard. And probably alluding to something they knew from their history, right, of God's glory there in the wilderness, guarding and protecting them as they fled Egypt and as they led them into the promised land. God was there guarding and protecting, and the Lord's like, you can have that again if you'll just turn to me. Verse 10, it says, your light will dawn in the darkness, and your darkness will be as the noonday. And so, again, there would be light. And then verse 11, satisfy your soul in drought, God promises to do. Strengthen their bones. And like a watered garden, they, they would be like a watered garden. They would be like a spring of water. And so there would be life. There would be health in their life. All these things they were lacking, but again, because they were disconnected from the Lord. They weren't where the Lord wanted them to be. And so that brings us to verse 12 here as we begin to get to wrap up. In verse 12, this is something I, let me just read it. It says, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And as we consider this, now this is of course speaking of, I think a future prophecy for them of, of the land being rebuilt and them having that opportunity to repair the walls and to restore because things are gonna be destroyed because they were not gonna turn back to the Lord until that happened. But the application I wanna bring home to us tonight is, you know, we live among a world of lost people. I think we know that. And sin has laid waste to lives all around us. And the Lord wants us to walk with him in an upright way so that he can use us so that it's not, that's not only for our sake. I mean, and so, Many of the things we're talking about here in this chapter, it would have benefited them. It would have been for their sake. And it is beneficial to our lives when we walk with the Lord. But it's not only for our sake that we need to walk closely with him, but for the sake of the generation that we live in. He wants to use us, I think we can see from this verse, to be builders, repairers, restorers. And that word restore there means to bring back, lead back, to repair, restore what has been demolished. And the Lord has this for his church, right, today. The Lord, us as his church, the Lord wants us to be a part of seeing people restored, seeing lives repaired, their walls of their life built back up, and then brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And even among those in our own midst who fall away from the Lord, the Lord wants to use us to help restore them. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such as one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so this is, the Lord's in the business of restoration. You know, he's restored us, and he wants to use us to help bring that restoration to others. Of course, we know we don't do the restoring, but we get to lead people to the one who restores we get to love people and minister to them and point them to him so that their lives can be healed, so their lives can be turned back and restored. And 
in verse 13, he gives them another warning. Turn from trampling my day. And it speaks of the Sabbath here. It says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so there in verse 13, you know, we, if you've studied any of their history, this is a problem they had. I mean, they were, they were known to trample the Sabbath day. They were known to not uh, use it as God had given them to use it. And the Sabbath for them was a sign of the covenant God had made with them. Exodus 31.13 says, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. And the problem here, as God's pointed out, they were trampling that. The sign of the covenant God made with them. This day, this would be a day for them to rest and to set aside their work and be reminded of who the Lord is. Reflect upon who, the, who it is that had redeemed them, who it is that they worshiped. And, you know, if you think about it, the commandment to keep the Sabbath is probably one of the easiest of the commandments God gave them to keep, right? Because all it required was just stop. <laughs> stop doing anything that day. Just stop and rest and worship the Lord and just meditate upon who the Lord is. Just quit doing things. But sadly, as we see in this verse, they were focused on their pleasure. They couldn't even obey and honor the Lord this, this one day. That's how far from the Lord they had, they, had, they had strayed. But then verse 14, again, the mercy of God, is, it, reminds, it says that, you know, come back to the Lord and then you can delight, you'll have delight. The word delight there means to enjoy oneself. In the context here, it means to take one's pleasure in God. They thought they would find pleasure in doing their own thing. That's, what they, that's the lie they, they had pursued. And this is the deception that our flesh, this world, and the enemy tries to bring to us. That we'll find pleasure in doing our own thing. This deception is, is all around us, and we, we face it. You know, the deception that we, we need this to have satisfaction, we need that. And the world is out there pursuing it, and the enemy wants us to do the same and, you know, the deception is, is that I can pursue my desires that are contrary to what God has said and find pleasure. That, that, and that is a lie. That's a lie. That we can find pleasure in pursuing other things and end up finding satisfaction there. And it, we can't. The only place we can find true pleasure and delight is in the Lord and only in him and in a right relationship with him. This is what the Lord desires of us. And again, you know, the Lord loves us. You know, the worship team can come forward. And as we conclude here tonight, you know, just a few things I want to just lay before us. And actually, if you could turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, as we wrap up here, I want to read to us from what the Apostle Paul says about uh, the... The, the commandment the Lord has given us in regards to the Lord's Supper. You know, for them, the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant God had made with them. And for us, the sign of the covenant under new covenant is the Lord's Supper communion. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But, you know, may it be our heart 
to walk closely with the Lord so that we don't end up where they were at, you know, end up in a, living an illusion, thinking we're doing right when in fact we're not. And, um, you know, it's so easy to fall into self-deception. And, and so that's why it leads me into this thing of the Lord's Supper. Now, this coming Sunday, we're going to be having communion. And, you know, I just want to encourage us to be preparing our hearts for that this coming Sunday. And I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32. Um, there, the Apostle Paul says, speaking of the Lord's Supper and speaking here to the Corinthians, um, he says to them, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. Um, take eat. I'm sorry, I lost my place. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he has also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is new covenant in my blood. This do often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And then Paul gives us this warning. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may, be con- that we may not be condemned with the world. And, you know, Wearsby says of this, Paul did not say that we had to be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's right. That's not what he's saying there. He only said that we should partake in a worthy manner. If we are to participate in a worthy manner, we must examine our hearts and judge our sins and confess them to the Lord. And so, you know, they had the Sabbath where they could pause and remember who the Lord was and orient themselves again to what was true. We have the Lord's Supper as an opportunity, the communion table, where we can come and we can reorient ourselves to what the truth is and allow the Lord to speak to us And so I just want to encourage you to be preparing your heart for that this coming Sunday. You know, let's don't go through the motions. Let's don't just come and and take communion, but let's allow the Lord to speak to us and and point out to us the things that we need to confess and that we need to repent of. And if there's nothing, that's fine. I'm not saying make something up. Don't make something up. But we have the promise that if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive And so may we be examining our life in light of God's word, right? And allowing his spirit to convict us of sin and lead us to repentance. May we be living in a way that doesn't hinder others from coming to God. And may we be living in a way that allows God to use us. And this should be something that excites us, but to help restore and repair the broken lives around us. That's why, those are just some of the reasons why it matters that we walk closely with the Lord and we allow him to help us to stay on the path and not succumb to the temptations and to the lies that are all around us. And so we're gonna, you can stand, we're gonna close, let me close in prayer and we're gonna sing a song of worship to the Lord. And if you wanna come up and pray, I'd encourage you to come and pray and seek the Lord. We'll be up here to pray with you. But let me close in prayer. Father, I just thank you tonight for who you are. God, I thank you that, Lord, you are, 
Lord, the high and holy one, Lord. You're the one who inhabits eternity. And Lord, we just bow our hearts before you, God, recognizing, Lord, that you are holy. And Lord, that apart from Jesus Christ, Lord, we're not, Lord. And I thank you. We thank you tonight for the redemption that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand before you righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just give you praise for that tonight. And Lord, I do pray, though, that if there's things that we're holding on to, if there's things, Lord, that are hindering others or hindering us in coming to you, I pray that, God, you would show us. I pray you'd speak to us. I pray we'd have ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And may we continue to still allow you to work in our lives, Lord. May this be a place known for where we're allowing God to have his way. God, to do what he wants to do in us, Lord, and through us. And so, Lord, here we are. We just surrender ourselves to you and say, Lord, you alone are worthy, Lord. You alone are worthy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.